Good morning, church. Would you stand and worship with us? We're so glad to have you back in our normal setting, but just like last week when we were a little more secluded and with each other, just use this morning to really get close to God, listen to the words you're singing, and really mean the worship that you're giving to God. This is such a great way to just connect with Him in the morning before we listen to our sermon.
are winding down our care and share donations. If you forgot to bring them today, like me, uh, we have only until Friday. So um, if you're gonna stop, stop by at any point during the week, make sure and call the office first to make sure somebody's here to bring in those donations. Um, we have two Bible studies for men going on at the moment. One of them is the Redwood Faith. Um, Steve Mayo is going to be teaching that on Thursday and Saturday. So if you can't make it Thursday, Saturday. Um, it started this last week, but it continues to go on, so jump right in. And that's at from 10 or 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. And the, also the study that Pastor Tim is doing on the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, week by week, study of that. Um, there's no uh, timeline on that, so jump, just jump right in also as well. That's on Wednesdays from 6 to 7 for men. Um, we have our ladies' Bible studies as well. You can look online and see when all of those are. There's plenty of opportunity to be a part of one of those groups. And so uh, finally, we have out in the back, it's not like we're being Hobby Lobby and, and uh, doing our Christmas decorations too early, I promise. Uh, we have our uh, Christmas tree that is for Kids Crossing. And I believe that's the group that uh, has the foster care kids. And so if you would like to choose one of the tags from the tree, you're, not, you're undecorating it, but it's okay. And on there, you'll see a description of what that child's wish list is. And when you uh, go and purchase whatever it is on the wish list, you bring it back with the tagged uh, a tape to the gift, but it has to be unwrapped. So it's tempting to put nice pretty bows on it, but bring it back with the tag unwrapped, and then we will get those uh, to Kids Crossing so that they can distribute those. All right, let's pray. Father God, you are indeed a good, good Father. And Lord, even when our circumstances have us searching around for where the good is, all we have to do is look to you and know and have the confidence and trust that you are indeed a good God. And you are worthy of our praise and of our trust, Lord. Lord, capture our hearts so that we are continually looking to you and to looking at what your word says more than what our eyes see. Lord, there are battles going around all around us spiritually, and we know that you are in charge because you've already won. Remind us of that when our hearts are low. Speak to us through this message, Lord. Anoint Tim with words through the Holy Spirit that will touch deep in us and change us so that we can go out and be salt and light. We pray all of these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Morning, everyone, and welcome this morning. We are back in the book of John, and the entire theme in the book of John has been summarized for us in this little phrase Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King. 
That's a beautiful one-sentence summary to what is going on in the book of John. It is going to demonstrate and present to us the glories, the majesty, the beauty. I mean, I'm done? If that was, indeed, the only thing you heard this morning, I would be immensely happy. Not because we'd get out early, but because that is, indeed, the theme of what we need to understand and believe about Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the overcoming God King, and everything in the book of John just amplifies that and glorifies that and presents it to us chapter after chapter, all the way up to the crescendo of Christ's trial, his death, and his resurrection. And if there was one part of scripture to turn to, um, let's say you had a friend that said, hey, you know what, I really don't know what this whole Christianity thing is about, and you don't want to spend the time going from Genesis to Revelation to share it with someone. If you turned to John chapter 12, verse 36, all the way through verse 50, and you simply read the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, you would have a beautiful, perfect, concise view of the whole story of the gospel. Everything is there in these verses that we're covering that is necessary for you to have the confidence to present to someone who is Christ and what am I supposed to do in relationship to that. It's a beautiful text uh, that we're going to tackle and it's going to take us some time to get through it, but I'm happy to get through it. But we can't start yet in John chapter 12, verse 36b. We have two other verses that I think are very fundamental for us to look at or at least have in our mind when we get to the verses this morning. The first is in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And in that chapter, Peter is presenting the gospel to the crowd, and he says, and let me just read this for you, Acts chapter 4, uh, four uh, starting in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Paul, um, excuse me, Peter is saying that salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ. There is not many salvation paths to God. There is one narrow path to God's good pleasure through Christ. Lots of other roads lead to God, but only one to his pleasant side. The rest are judgment. And Peter says with clarity, if you want to have salvation, you have to do it through Christ. There's no other way. There's not Christ plus something else, or someone else, and maybe a little bit of Christ, or mostly Christ and something else. It is only through Christ. Salvation before God is exclusive to your relationship with Christ. And if you have a relationship with Christ as your Lord and Savior, then salvation is yours. All the hopes and promises of Scripture are yours. The pleasantness of meeting God for the first time face to face is going to go well with you because Christ has paved the, paved the way. He has made it possible that your sin is forgiven, but it is only through Christ. No other means, not obedience to the law. Obedience to the law does not save you. It is only faith and belief in Christ that saves you. It is exclusive, absolutely 100%, exclusively through Christ. You can trust no other means. You can have no other path to salvation. You can have no other hope in this life or the next 
but Christ. It is exclusive only through him because he has been the only one who has come as the Messiah and as the God-King, Jesus Christ. So salvation is only through Christ. And secondly, a verse to keep in our mind as we're going through John chapter 12 this morning is actually from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is certainty when you exercise faith and belief in God, which doesn't have to move mountains, but it can be very small. Very small faith, very small evidence that you believe in him, very small amount of confidence in his work. If you do that, Paul says, you will be saved. It is a certainty. So not only is salvation exclusive through Christ, But when you put your hope, your faith, your confidence in Christ, your salvation is secure. It is true. It is right. It is 100% yours. It is... It's confident. Salvation through Christ is exclusive, and it is confident. So those two things you have to bear in mind as we look at at least the first portion of John chapter 12, that salvation is exclusive, only through Christ, and salvation is confidence. If I believe in him, I am saved. Now, Paul doesn't have any type of other conditions when it comes to salvation. Belief in Christ, the exclusive Savior, the exclusive Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, it must be through him, but if you confess it, you believe it, you are saved. And that goes for even the worst of sinners. The worst of sinners can come to Christ and say, I need your salvation, forgive me, I believe in you, I believe that God raised you from the dead, save me. And that prayer, God will always answer, yes, I will save you. And I know that for a fact, because he did it for me. I know it for a fact, because he's done it for you. I know he's, it's a fact, because he did it for a guy named Saul of Tarsus who eventually had his name changed to Paul, who was such a sinner that he had absolute confidence in his own righteousness. He had the exclusive way to God through obedience to the law, and that did him no good. It drove him to the point where he would persecute and martyr and kill Christians to prove how good he was at keeping the law. He didn't go through Christ, and he didn't believe in Christ. And then in that unbelief, God stopped him one day in the book of Acts and changed his life, opened his eyes to the beautiful, wonderful news about who Christ is, and then he believed. He took the step of faith and believed, and then that belief changed his life. God forgave him, God redeemed him, God regenerated him, made him born again, and all of a sudden, he becomes triumphant in discussing his faith to the world. In John chapter 12, we pick up the story. Jesus has just uh, raised Lazarus. He's done other things. He's come into Jerusalem. He's talked to, uh, talked to the Pharisees and the crowds that he needs to be lifted up. He needs to die upon the cross for our sins to be forgiven. And John chapter 12 closes with these words. 
Then Jesus said these things, he departed. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It didn't matter if Jesus raised someone from the dead. It didn't matter if he healed the blind. It didn't matter if he uh, turned water into wine, fed thousands of people, walked on water, stopped the storms. It didn't matter. People looked at that and still did not believe that Jesus was the exclusive way to God and had no confidence in their belief in him. Evidence seen is not the same as evidence believed. They saw tons of evidence why his message was right, why Christ indeed was the Son of God, the Messiah, the God King, but they refused because their hearts were far from God. They did not want to give up their own righteousness, their own works, their own path to God. Maybe they thought they were smarter than Jesus, or maybe they were just caught in traditions and said, hey, this is this was fine for my father, my grandfather, all the way back to, uh, to Abraham, Moses, and, and Moses. But they didn't realize that both Abraham and Moses approached God through faith and belief, not through their own works and righteousness. But they did not want to believe. And we're told why that belief was so strong, why that belief was so thick-headed, or that disbelief in Christ was so thick-headed, uh, because uh, John now quotes from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, and he says, so that the word of God, the, uh, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is God's glory, and spoke of him, that is spoke of God. Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah has this beyond miracle moment where he is seeing God face to face. And he falls on the ground and worships God. And here's the angels worship God. And God restores him and says, I want you to go preach to my people but it's going to be hard because there are times where their unbelief is so strong that I have confirmed their unbelief and they're not going to believe your message. Their hearts will be hardened to it, their eyes will be blind to it, their ears will be shut off from it. And it doesn't matter how many miracles you produce because they will be so hardened in their unbelief, so anti-God, that there's nothing, Isaiah, you're going to be able to say to change that. The only thing that's going to be able to change that is me working a miracle of grace in their life. Me uncovering their blindness, opening their deafness. And until that happens, in their unbelief, they will champion it. They will promote their unbelief. They will pride themselves in their unbelief. And they will do everything they can in culture and society to make unbelief the one thing you believe about God. That there's many ways to him and it really doesn't matter, but you cannot be exclusive. And Isaiah sees all of this, all of this glory of God, this majesty. In fact, let me just read Isaiah chapter 6, and I, oh, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but it's great scripture. Isaiah chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it real quickly. But I want you to get this heavenly picture that Isaiah sees. 
In the year of the king Uzziah, which is about um, 740 B.C., right around that time in Judah, uh, King Uzziah died. And this is uh, Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, which he cover- two which he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew about, which is um, uh, angels. He's speaking about angels. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? So God is saying to Isaiah, having just seen and witnessed this miracle moment and his sins forgiven in this very dramatic way, A voice, the Lord says, who can I send that will tell this message to the world? To my people who are hard of heart and blind and deaf to the message of God and faith. And he says, here I am, send me. And the Lord said, go and say to this people, that is to the Israelites, keep on hearing, but you do not understand. Keep on seeing, but you do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, It will be burned again like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So upon this miracle moment and this incredible pep talk of God, because Isaiah says, I'll go and I'll preach the message. God says, oh yeah, let me tell you about this. It's going to be a long process. No one's going to listen to you, and their judgment is going to come upon them, and I'm going to lay them to waste. But there's hope. A stump will rise. That is speaking specifically about Christ will come out of all this destruction and unbelief. And here we are in John chapter 12. The Christ has come. The stump has risen. There is life in Israel again because Christ is proclaiming the words of salvation, and people are still not believing him. And God says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It is hard for me to fathom in one hand that when you read the messages of eternal life, the life of Christ and all that he's done, that people will look at that and laugh at it. It shocks me that they will ridicule it and make fun of it. It hurts me when they attack it and try to discredit it. It's painful because I know how much comfort these words bring. But it no longer shocks me 
that the world hates the message of Christ. It no longer really surprises me that people ridicule it. Because that is their nature. Left to themselves without the grace of God in their lives. Left to themselves, they would not come to Christ. It takes God drawing them. It takes God changing their heart. It takes God bringing about new birth in order for them to have that faith in order to turn to God. And the one who turns in faith, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, will they or will they not be saved? They will be. They will be saved. Everyone who turns to Christ in faith will be saved. But if they do not turn to Christ in faith, if they remain in their hard-heartedness and deaf state and dead state, there's no other way to heaven. There is no other way they're going to get there. Doesn't matter how nice of a person they are. Doesn't matter how nice of a family person they are. Doesn't matter how faithful they are in relationships. Doesn't matter how much they volunteer. It doesn't matter anything else. It only matters if they confess Christ and turn to him for salvation. And God said everyone that does that will be saved. So it really is shocking that God extends grace to us. What's not shocking is that we have a heart of unbelief until that point. But what is shocking is that God says, I'm going to extend grace to you. God's grace is absolutely amazing. It is mind-boggling because by definition it is undeserved love, merit, and favor. We don't deserve to hear the message of Christ. We don't deserve to hear the gospel. We don't deserve to hear that our sins can be forgiven. But God does that time and time and time again. But if we harden our hearts to it, if we reject it and reject it and reject it and reject it, God confirms that rejection. And there's no other way to be saved, but through Christ. Nevertheless, we're told in verse 42 and 43, many even of the authorities believed in him. We know Nicodemus did and others. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I only have, well, in my mind I have something short to tell you, but it may end up being long. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus says that if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus, God, takes our confession and our stance before the world very seriously. You cannot be a secret Christian. You can't. Christian, by definition, is I am Christ-like. 
which means when I enter the room, people should see I am different. I am promoting God's holiness, not my own. I would say that it is a terribly weak, immature person who tries to hide their Christianity from others. Now, I don't mean you have to be up on your soapbox condemning people, judging people, yelling at people, quoting scripture all the time towards people, not being annoying, because we're told to present the truth. How? In love. In love. And there are times where Christ, he, he, he was very clear with the Pharisees. You guys are teaching wrong, you're acting wrong, you're living wrong, you're whitewashed tomb. God is going to judge you completely and ferociously for your hatred of me. But when it comes to those sinners who were truly unsure of how do I get right with God, Jesus is incredibly patient, incredibly kind, sitting and dining with sinners, not condoning sin and sinners, but realizing I have an opportunity to bring the message to them. He did it in love. When God changes our heart, we are more like Isaiah. How do I go tell the world? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Hiding your Christianity is dangerous because it automatically asks the question, Did a change really happen in your life? Did you really get forgiven? Because if you knew what you were forgiven, you would be championing that message from the mountaintops. No one could stop you talking about your salvation and your king and your Messiah and the freedom and peace and grace you've seen. You'd be telling everybody. Probably to the point where they'd say, okay, I need you to stop talking to me about it. But then again, You'd be praying for that person time and time again, and you'd be sharing with them every opportunity you had for their salvation. But fear of man can stop you in your tracks from being a vibrant, shining witness of the gospel. And it has been a problem of God's people from the very beginning of time. We have been more in love with the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We're more concerned about getting kicked out of an inner circle somewhere. These religious leaders were dead set, sold on loving Jesus and accepting his message, and yet they were afraid because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Wow, that was their fear? They don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Had they not heard what Jesus said early on in his ministry? You deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before God. That should raise chills in your veins. Should make stand, hair stand on its end on your arms. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before God. Wow. Those are terrifying words. They're terrifying words on purpose. I want to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Right? Those are the words we want to hear, right? Words of comfort, enjoy. Come into the heavenly feast that God has prepared for you. Sit at the table that was prepared for me. Enjoy the inheritance that I have earned for you. 
We want to see the loving hands and arms of Jesus when we have that day when we draw our final breath. But to hear the words, why did you deny me? Why did you deny me? Terrifying. Imagine how Peter must have felt the moment he realized he had denied Jesus, just as he had predicted. He was broken. But that brokenness didn't remain broken in Peter because he was one of God's children. Jesus restored him. And Peter became a vibrant champion of the faith. I want to get to the point where I'm not having to be broken first, that I just champion the faith from day one. I want people to know about my God and Savior. And I've said it before, you might think, oh, Tim, you're a pastor. It's got to be easy for you to tell people about Jesus. I mean, you're a pastor after all. I mean, that's what you do. I wish that was the answer. Because I get scared. I get nervous. What are people going to think of me if I tell them about Jesus? What are people going to think when I tell them I'm a pastor? Yeah, that might give me a little extra bonus to be able to share with them because that's what they're expecting, but I want them to treat me normal. And the moment I think that, I've fallen into this trap that these men and women fell into in the first century of the church. I'm more concerned about how I'm accepted by others than I am how I'm accepted by God. And there's only one verse that I can think of that is a solid, absolute encouragement. If you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with being a witness, if you're struggling with being the light of the world, you know, reflecting the light of God's glory and grace, if you're, if you're afraid of telling others about Jesus, there's a verse coming up in John, and we're, I'm just going to mention this real quick. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. And this is the encouragement. Jesus is right at the end of his ministry with his disciples, so he has lots of last-minute things to get across to them. And this is one of the things. Uh, well, let me actually start in verse 18, because it sets the context. If the world hates you, we're kind of talking about that, know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And here's the encouraging words. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Let me read that again, because I'm not getting the reaction I was expecting. These are the encouraging words. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see how that's encouraging, right? You want to stand for Jesus, guess what? They're going to persecute you. So you already know the future. That's amazing. You know the future in every relationship that you have with the world. If you proclaim that Jesus Christ is exclusive way to salvation, and if you claim that it must be through faith and not works, know that the world will persecute you and hate you like they did Jesus. Therefore, what are you afraid of? 
What are you really afraid of? You're afraid of being persecuted? God already told you that's going to happen. Okay, so I have no fear of the future. I know what's going to happen. I will be ridiculed. I will be made fun of. I will be ostracized. I will be taken out of that group, taken out of that group, laughed at, lied about. The big one, hurt. And I'm not talking just hurt feelings or a bruised ego. I'm talking about all the way. All the way. Martyrdom. Martyrdom for your faith. And if that happens because you stand up for Jesus and you proclaim the day of salvation is here and now, and they persecute to the full extent of persecution and martyrdom, you don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus told you, this is what's going to happen to my disciples. I guess the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Look back to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. All of heaven rejoicing, the glory of God filling the universe, and you participating in it as one of his children? How can that not be worth it? When you stand with God against the world, you stand with the majority. Even if you're by yourself, you're with the majority. The rest of the chapter summarizes the message of the gospel. It is glorious and beautiful. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. He's talking about the centrality of the Father's role and message and work in the gospel. That if you see Christ, you see the Father. They're a triune God. They're one and the same in their godness. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again, that clarity about belief and faith in Christ brings salvation to anyone who believes and sees him. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come into the, to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge them on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know what his commandment is. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is speaking as the role of the Son, the Son of God, born of Mary. And his message to the world is, you see that relationship that I have with the Father. Everything that I'm doing has come from the Father. I'm not doing this for my own glory or for my own sake. I'm doing it for his glory and for his sake. And if you believe that message, you have that commandment of eternal life. It cannot be taken from you. You cannot lose it. 
even if the world persecutes you, you will be more than okay. You will be great. Because you will be reflecting the glory of the Father and not worried about the glory and praise of man. That is hard, though. That is hard to stand up for Christ in a world that is so contrary to Christ. Everywhere you turn, it is contrary to Christ. But you are safe. Safe and okay in your belief in Christ and your proclamation that He is the only way and that only by faith can you be saved and that salvation is eternal. And if you ever need encouragement to be that strong, confessing believer, just remember, if they persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. Persecution is part of our calling here and now, but it's only temporary. How long will the persecution last? You know what? If, if God brings grace into our lives, we might live to 90 or 95. All right? 90, 95 years. Versus how long will the rewards of glory happen? Eternity. There's not even, it's not even close. 90 years to eternity? I'd rather have my faith, my hope, my words in eternity bound than in just my life. I want to close by just asking you two questions to take home. One, it's what is stopping you right now from believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One? What is stopping you from that? If, if you've never asked that question and answered it for yourself, I'd ask, what is stopping you right now? Is it fear? Is it, is it you have too much guilt? Are, are you too far from God? Are you too bad of a person? Or do you think, hey, I don't need it, I'm a pretty good person? What is stopping you from acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, the only Son of God, who died and was raised for your sins? What's stopping you? And then secondly, maybe for more of us, what is stopping you from standing up for the message of salvation? Where have you become quiet and silent? What relationships have you kind of distanced? I don't want them to really know I'm a Christian. I mean, they know I am, but I don't want to push it. Where are those relationships where you don't want to push? Because I'm going to pray at the end of this that God forces you to push those relationships, that he forces you to make a stand, that he forces you to make a decision. Do I stand with God or do I want the pleasure of men? Do I want value in 90 years of life or an eternity of life? Let's pray. Our Father, you are glorious in giving the Son the message and means to save us. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities to push, not negatively, but through love, the message of the gospel to the people around us. Father, let our light shine that people may see our works and our faith and praise you. May you give us opportunities to share our faith 
to show people the real reason for Christmas and Easter, the real reason why we go to church, the real reason why we pray and read your word, the real reason why we have such faith and confidence in you. Father, even if you bring persecution our way, we will not fear it, we will not shy from it, we will not dread it. But we know that if your son was held through it safely, so will we. We will see the resurrection of the dead unto life. That is our future, that is our hope, that is your promise to us. Thank you for giving us such confidence to stand for the message of the gospel. May you give us that strength. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing.
Now hear these words of encouragement from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvester. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they 